Would you please open your Bibles to Psalm 73? Psalm 73. And then I will read very briefly, you need not turn here, Matthew 5, 8 for our New Testament reading. I've decided to take a little break from our Exodus study to take you to Psalm 73 this morning. There are three reasons for this. One, I love Psalm 73 and it's been coming to my mind often and so I decided to preach it. Two, I have been mindful of the fact that many within this congregation have suffered afflictions as of late. One question that Christians who are afflicted, along with those who love those who are afflicted, might ask is this, why does God permit His people to suffer? And there is another question related to this one, why does God allow the wicked to prosper? These are difficult but important questions that all of God's people will likely wrestle with at some point in their lives, and this psalm will be of help to us. Thirdly, Psalm 73 does have some relationship to what we have been considering in Exodus, namely God's tabernacle or temple. Here in this psalm, it is called the sanctuary of the Lord, and it plays a central role in bringing relief to the troubled soul of the psalmist named Asaph. So then, uh, we will not only learn how to rightly interpret the sufferings of the righteous and prosperity of the wicked in this life, we will also learn something about the significance and usefulness of the sanctuary or temple of the Lord. Let us go now to Psalm 73. Hear now the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, clear, and authoritative word. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, Pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, their eyes swell out through their fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them, and they say, How could God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, These are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. And now I will read very briefly Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Notice that Psalm 73 is called a psalm of Asaph. There are some psalms written by King David that were addressed to Asaph so that he would put them to music. He was a musician. And some think that is the case here. And if it were the case, the title should read a Psalm 2 or 4 Asaph. But 2 Chronicles 29.30 indicates that Asaph was not only a musician, he was also a writer of psalms. And I think that is the case with Psalm 73. This psalm was written by Asaph for the people of God. I would like to consider this psalm with you in three parts. In this psalm, Asaph opens his heart to us concerning a great temptation that at one time came upon his soul. Firstly, in verses 1 through 15, we will consider the occasion for the temptation. Secondly, in verses 16 through 17, we will consider the relief from the temptation. And thirdly, in verses 18 through 28, we will consider the truth that emerged. From the temptation. We will come to consider the occasion for Asaph's temptation in just a moment, but first I want you to notice that he begins his psalm with a rock solid confession concerning the goodness of God. And we need this. We're about to enter in uh, to Asaph's temptation with him. And so first he makes a rock solid confession concerning the goodness of God. Verse 1 Truly, God is good. To Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Indeed, this is a firm foundation upon which to stand. Truly, God is good. God is good to all. Yes, even to the wicked. He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall upon the just and the unjust alike. And God was good to Israel in a special way. He redeemed them, led them, and fed them. He entered into a special covenant with them. He entrusted them with His precious and very great promises. He dwelt in the midst of them and promised to preserve them, to bring the Messiah into the world through them, to bless all nations. And so Asaph says, Truly, God is good to Israel. But then he adds this, To those who are pure in heart. Not all within Old Covenant Israel were pure in heart. In fact, many within Old Covenant Israel were wicked and corrupt. Many were Israelites according to the flesh only, but not from the heart. In a moment we will hear Asaph speak of the wicked and their ways. And who were these wicked people that Asaph saw? Many of them, if not all of them, were Israelites, the very people amongst whom Asaph lived. And so he begins with this declaration of truth... Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is a firm foundation for us to stand upon as we begin to wrestle with the very things that Asaph was so, very, so severely tempted with. In verses 2 through 3, the temptation is described to us in brief. There we read, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. The words, but as for me, 
are to be contrasted with the reference to those who are pure in heart just mentioned. Asaph first confessed that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but now he confesses that he, for a time, was defiled in the heart. But as for me, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. I want you to notice the connection between the heart and the feet. Purity in the heart will produce purity in the feet, that is to say, purity in one's way of life. And this is why I so often exhort you, brothers and sisters, to keep your hearts pure or to tend to the garden of your souls. It is good that you strive by God's grace to walk worthily before the Lord, but it is from the heart that the mouth speaks. It is from the heart that the life of man does flow. The heart and the mouth The heart and the hands, the heart and the feet are intimately related. They are inseparably related. A pure heart will result in a pure walk. A corrupt heart will result in a corrupt walk. And Asaph knew this. And so he said, but as for me, in contrast to the pure in heart just mentioned, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped for... I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It was envy within the heart that nearly caused Asaph to stumble in his walk. Do you see it? The envy within his heart nearly caused Asaph to stumble in his walk. To be envious is to have a strong desire for what someone else has. Envy and jealousy are very similar things. Envy and covetousness are similar things too. And here Asaph confesses that for a time he struggled with the sin of envy in his heart. This almost caused him to stumble in his walk, that is to say, in his devotion to the Lord. So what provoked Asaph's envy? What was the occasion for it? For I was envious Of the arrogant, he says, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I wonder if you could understand Asaph's struggle. Can you look out upon the world through his eyes and see what he saw and understand what tempted him? What did he see that troubled him so deeply? He noticed that oftentimes arrogant and wicked people prosper in this world, while those who are pure in heart, Suffer afflictions. I wonder, brothers and sisters, if you have noticed this too. Have you ever looked out upon the world and wondered why it is that wicked and arrogant people, people who hate God, the ways of God, and the people of God, people who live lives of sin and rebellion against God, prosper in this world, while those who love God and the Christ He has sent suffer? If you were to be honest, you would probably admit that you have thought about these things too. Asaph thought about these things, and he was for a time so bothered and perplexed by what he saw that his heart grew envious and his feet almost slipped. In verses 4 through 14, Asaph tells us what he saw with his eyes that troubled him so deeply. Verse 4, For they, that is the arrogant and the wicked, have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. In other words, when I look out upon the arrogant and the wicked, 
Their lives seem to be so easy. They are well fed. They seem not to struggle. Verse 6, Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. Here the psalmist describes how these arrogant and wicked ones carry themselves in the world. They strut about pridefully with their heads held high. Pride is their necklace. They are aggressive and oppressive to all who are beneath them. In fact, the fine clothes they wear were purchased with the riches obtained through their oppression of the weak. Violence covers them as a garment. They eat very well in their prosperity and it shows on their faces. And they go on living lives of sin and folly, seemingly without a care in the world. And what do these arrogant and wicked ones do with their lips? Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues. Their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? That little phrase Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them is a little difficult to translate and to interpret. And you can see the difficulty by comparing English translations, the ESV, NET, King James Version, the NIV, NASB, for example. Each one renders that phrase a little bit differently. I suspect it means this. The people who align themselves with the arrogant scoffers return to them again and again. They do not find fault with them and they benefit from their allegiance with them. And then together the arrogant scoffers and their people say, How can God know is their knowledge in the Most High? In other words, we will do whatever we please for God does not see us. Indeed, This is how the wicked and arrogant boasters live. They live as if God does not exist, or at least as if He does not see. They think that their prosperity in this world is evidence that God does not see. They live lives of wickedness and they get away with it. They continue in their prosperity. What they do not know is that God sees all. And He has in fact given them over to their pride and wickedness as a form of judgment against them. Verse 12 brings this little contemplation of the wicked and their ways to a conclusion with this summary statement, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. And you know, I cannot argue with this observation that Asaph has made. Indeed, the world is filled with arrogant and wicked people like this. And it is true, they often seem to flourish in this life. Think of the immoral ones who are rich and famous. Think of the crooked politicians whose power seems only to increase. Think of those who swindle and cheat and get away with it. Or perhaps you are thinking of acquaintances of yours who have lived Godless and immoral lives, and yet the sun always seems to be shining down on them. Indeed, the world is filled with people like this. Asaph's observations were not incorrect. Where did he go wrong then? Where did Asaph go wrong? He envied these fools, and only a fool will envy fools. In verses 13 through 14, Asaph confesses 
the foolish and sinful conclusion he arrived at in his heart after considering the apparent prosperity of the wicked and contrasting it with his own sufferings and the sufferings of those upright in heart. In his mind and heart he said, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Uh, This was what Asaph was tempted to believe. In other words, he thought this within himself, What is the point in striving to keep the heart pure for God? What is the point in laboring to live a godly life? If those who pursue godliness suffer in this life, and those who live in sin and rebellion against God flourish in this life, then is not our devotion to God empty and in vain? Isn't it all just a big waste of time for us to to strive to walk according to God's commandments when the wicked prosper and the righteous seem to always suffer? Thankfully, Asaph did not say what he was thinking and feeling. Verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Asaph, remember, was a leader within Israel. If he would have declared, published, or proclaimed the sinful and foolish thoughts of his mind and the wayward feelings of his heart, he would have done damage to many. He would have unsettled the faith of many. And by God's grace, he held his tongue during this time of wrestling within his soul. He did not speak thus. He did not publish his thoughts or his feelings. But he remained silent as he contemplated these things. So we have considered the occasion for the temptation that Asaph endured. He was tempted to turn from the Lord when he observed that the wicked prosper and they seem to always be at ease while the upright in heart suffer afflictions. The envy in his heart almost caused his feet to slip and his lips to utter blasphemies. But the Lord was gracious to keep him and to uphold him. In verses 16 and 17, Asaph tells us about what brought relief from the temptation. There he says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. The words, but when I thought how to understand this, indicate that Asaph was wrestling deeply with the things he had perceived. The things he perceived were true, at least somewhat true. Oftentimes, the arrogant and wicked do prosper in this world, while the upright in heart suffer affliction. But these facts must be interpreted. These facts, these true things that Asaph observed, they must still be interpreted. Why do the wicked prosper? Do they flourish inwardly or is their flourishing outward only? How long will their flourishing last? What is their end? And why are the, up, why are the upright in heart so often afflicted? Are they afflicted inwardly too? How long will their affliction last? And what is their end? 
It is an undeniable fact that the wicked do often prosper in this world and the righteous do often suffer. But these things must be interpreted. They must be understood. Asaph wrestled with these things inwardly and the Lord was gracious to him in his wrestling. The Lord kept his feet from slipping. The Lord kept his lips from speaking blasphemies. Asaph thought how to understand this and he confesses that it was a wearisome task. In other words, it wore him out. In verse 17, we learn what it was that brought him relief. The word until indicates that we are about to be told. Asaph was troubled and deeply perplexed inwardly until. Until what? Until I went into the sanctuary of God, he says. The sanctuary is another name for the temple of Old Covenant Israel. There was something about going up to the temple that brought relief to Asaph's inner turmoil. There was something about the temple that made everything clear. At the temple, Asaph gained a new perspective, and this new perspective brought him relief. What insight did he gain at the temple? The text says Asaph went into the sanctuary of the Lord, and then he discerned their end. This means he came to see and to understand the end or the destiny of the arrogant and the wicked. I think we can also say that he came to understand the end and the destiny of the upright in heart, the righteous. I wonder what Asaph saw or heard at the temple that illumined his mind and comforted his heart. The word of God was read at the temple. Perhaps he heard the word read. The people of God prayed at the temple. Perhaps he heard the prayers of the saints. Songs were sung at the temple. Perhaps he heard the songs of the people and entered into praise with them, even in his agony. Or perhaps it was not what he heard, but what he saw that brought him relief. In our study of the book of Exodus, we have learned that the tabernacle and later the temple were symbolic structures. They were made according to the pattern shown to Moses on the mountain. They were designed to remind the worshiper of the God who is in heaven and the way that he has made and would make for sinful men and women to approach him. When Asaph approached the temple, its symbolism would have reminded him of the God of heaven, the creator of all things seen and unseen, and judge of all the earth. As he entered the temple, he would have seen the altar upon which the blood of the sacrificial animals was poured out. This would have reminded him of sin and of what every sin deserves, namely death. He would have observed the bronze laver used for ceremonial washing. This would have reminded him of our impurity and our need for cleansing if we are to come into the presence of the Lord. As he considered the holy place, he would have contemplated the glory and holiness of God. And as he looked upon the veil which separated the holy place from the most holy place, he would have remembered our alienation from God and our inability to enter into His presence apart from His grace. That is to say, apart from faith in the promised Messiah. It is impossible to know what exactly caught Asaph's attention. Was it the temple structure itself, the word of God, the prayers of the praise? Was it the priesthood, the sacrifices and the washings? Or perhaps it was the thought of the holy place and the most holy place, the furniture contained within and all that they signified. Whatever it was, it was probably a combination of these things. The temple and the things that were done there caused Asaph to lift his eyes up from the earth to the God of heaven. 
His perspective in this moment shifted from the momentary to the eternal. And it was then that he remembered the end or the destiny of the righteous and the wicked. The temple woke Asaph up to reality. And it was then that he remembered that the wicked were by no means to be envied. Not even in their earthly prosperity and worldly ease. So then we have considered the occasion for Asaph's temptation. He was tempted when he saw the prosperity of the wicked and the sufferings of the righteous. We have also considered the thing that brought him clarity or relief, namely the sanctuary of God and all that it signified. Now let us consider the truth that emerged from this time of testing. It is in verses 18 through 28 that Asaph declares the truth about the wicked and about the righteous. Look with me at verse 18. The very first word is this, truly, truly, he says. So he has emerged from his time of testing, and he is now ready to tell us the truth. Truly, he says. This ought to remind us of the very first word of this psalm, and that rock-solid declaration of truth that was made in the beginning. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is the truth. Then was described to us how Asaph was tempted to believe a lie. Relief came to him and now he is ready to tell us the truth again. First he declares the truth concerning the wicked. Verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Notice the word slippery and compare it with verse 2. Asaph, in his folly, had almost stumbled. He had nearly slipped as he envied the apparent prosperity, ease, and security of the wicked. And now he sees clearly that their feet are in slippery places and that they will, in fact, fall to ruin. In other words, Asaph came to see that the prosperity and stability of the wicked is not real, but it is an illusion. In fact, in truth, their feet are in slippery places, and they stand on the precipice of utter ruin. And you will notice that it is the Lord who put them there. Do you see it in the text? It is the Lord who put them there in that precarious place. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, Asaph says. Brothers and sisters, the prosperity of the wicked is not to be seen as a blessing from God, but as a curse. For the Lord has given these arrogant and wicked people over to their sins. Is there any greater form of judgment in this life than to be given over by the Lord to your sinful cravings and desires? Do not forget the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, 18 and 24. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here Paul is talking about the wrath of God being poured out even now. And then after describing their wickedness, he says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, etc. How did the Lord pour out His wrath upon these? 
How did he judge them in time? He will judge them at the end of time too. But how does he judge the wicked now? Well, in part, he gives them up. He gives them over to their passions. So when we see the wicked flourishing in their wickedness, we are not to envy that as if it were a blessing from God. Rather, we are to pity them, seeing that God has given these over to their passions and to their cravings. And their feet are, in fact, in slippery places. The Lord in His judgment has set them there. Brothers and sisters, if when you look at an arrogant and wicked person living a life of prosperity and ease, and you think, why has God so blessed that person You have badly misinterpreted the situation. The Lord disciplines those He loves. But He gives the wicked reprobates over to the passions of their flesh. More truth concerning the wicked is declared in verses 19 through 20. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. These are haunting words, aren't they? But they're true. The wicked may live in prosperity and comfort all the days of their lives. They may think very little of death, of judgment, and eternity. But death will certainly come upon them. And when it does, their lives of luxury will be destroyed They will vanish from this earth as phantoms. They will be swept away by terrors, the text says. Next, Asaph speaks the truth concerning himself and his debased frame of mind during his time of inner turmoil and temptation. In other words, he looks back for a moment upon that time of testing And he speaks the truth concerning what was going on in his mind and heart. He admits that it was folly. Look with me at verses 19 and 20. When my soul, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. The word translated as brutish could also be translated as foolish. I was an ignorant fool to envy The wicked, Asaph confesses. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. And only someone who forgets God can possibly envy the arrogant and wicked in their their prosperity. Those who fear God will never envy the wicked, but will pity them, especially if their earthly prosperity and ease is very great. And then Asaph adds these words, I was like a beast towards you. What a marvelously true confession this is. Those who forget God and live only for the pleasures of this world are like beasts. Their faces are pointed to the ground. They are driven by their appetite for the things of this world. They are instinctual. They are not rational as they should be. Beasts do not have the capacity to contemplate the divine, nor to live in light of eternity, for beasts are not made in the image of God. When Asaph says, I was like a beast towards you, this is what he means. He was thinking like a beast. His eyes were fixed upon the earth and the things of the earth. He was concerned only with earthly pleasures. He, for a time, lost sight of God and of eternity. But when he went into the sanctuary... His eyes, his mind and heart 
were lifted heavenward, and he began to think like an image bearer of God again. Finally, Asaph speaks the truth concerning God's goodness to him and to all who are, by the grace of God, pure in heart. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. Here, Asaph reflects upon God's presence with him. God did not abandon him during this time of testing. And perhaps this is why he referred to the temple as the sanctuary. There God dwelt, and there God's people were invited to come before him and to enjoy his presence. Asaph was reminded of the blessing of God's presence with him as he went into the temple, and so he called it the sanctuary. And then he says, you hold my right hand. We are to remember that Asaph's feet had almost slipped And who was it that kept him from stumbling? It was the Lord who held his hand to keep him. And so it is for all of God's elect. He calls them to faith and he keeps them even through times of great temptation. Verse 24, You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Here is the issue, brothers and sisters, The wicked and arrogant ones live according to what they see with their natural eyes. They are driven by their appetites for the things of this world. They live for the pleasures of this life. But those who belong to God, who are born of Him, who are upright in heart, live according to something else. They are driven by something else. They live according to what God has said in His Word. Brothers and sisters, we are to walk by faith, not by sight. We are to live according to God's counsel. And in this way, through faith in Christ and through walking according to His Word, we will enter into glory. So you see, the end of the arrogant and wicked is destruction, but the end of the upright in heart is glory. In this way, we will enter into glory. This will be our end as we take pleasure in God, as we take refuge in Him, as we walk according to His counsel, the end for us, for all who are upright in heart, will be glory. In verse 25, Asaph begins to confess that the Lord is his greatest treasure. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. What a change from the envy that was in his heart before. Just a short time ago, Asaph looked out upon the prosperity of the wicked and he he envied it. But now he makes this great confession, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. You, O Lord, you, my God, are the thing that I desire most. To have you is to have everything. You are my treasure, Asaph confesses. To have God, that is, to know Him, to be in a right relationship with Him, and to commune with Him, is infinitely better than the enjoyment of a few earthly pleasures that last only for a moment, then are taken away. In fact, even if you could have all of the treasures of this world, all of the pleasures of this world, they would still pale in comparison to the infinite delight of God Almighty. Verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is a beautiful confession. 
And I wonder, brothers and sisters, is it your confession? Hear it again. My flesh and my heart may fail. (laughs) I might wither away physically. I might lack the comforts of this life. My heart may fail also. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is my portion. He is the one thing that I desire. He is the one thing that will satisfy me now and for all eternity. God himself, notice, is said to be Asaph's portion. And God must be our portion too. In verses 27 through 28, we find the conclusion of the matter. For behold, the text says, uh, this is an exhortation to the reader to stop and to look and to contemplate the matter. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God, that is, I have made Yahweh my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. So finally, through this process of temptation and through the wearisome contemplation, the psalmist is brought by way of the temple to this firm resolution, this declaration of truth. It is good to be near God, he says. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you would make the Lord God your refuge, that you would delight in Him as Asaph did, and then tell of all of His works. Now please allow me to move this sermon towards a conclusion by offering a few reflections on this wonderful psalm. Firstly, Asaph's honesty in this psalm helps us to see that God's people are sometimes tempted and tested severely. Sometimes we must wrestle with things inwardly. Be sure to wrestle well, brothers and sisters, as Asaph did. Secondly, thanks be to God, He will not allow His people to fall, but will uphold them in the hour of temptation. It is the Lord who holds our right hand. Thanks be to God. Thirdly, we may learn from Asaph concerning how to act in the moment of temptation Notice that he did not speak, he held his tongue. This, of course, was by the grace of God, but there is wisdom here too. When experiencing turmoil inwardly, it is wise to refrain from speaking and from acting and to wait patiently upon the Lord, lest we blaspheme God's holy name or walk in the way of sin and folly. Fourthly, When experiencing inner turmoil and temptation, there is one place that we should walk to, and that is up to God's temple or sanctuary. And where is God's temple now, brothers and sisters? It is found in the assembly of God's people. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you must not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Do not forsake it when times are good. And do not forsake it when times are bad. Go up to the temple to hear God's word read and explained. Go up to the temple to pray. Go up to the temple to sing and to partake of the Lord's Supper. Go up to the temple so that you might be encouraged by the fellowship of the saints. And do all of this mindfully and heartily so that you might gain that godly and eternal perspective that you so desperately need, especially in moments of difficulty. Go up to the temple and regain that eternal perspective. 
Brothers and sisters, that is one thing that happens when God's people assemble each Lord's Day to partake of word and sacrament. God's people are reminded of God and Christ and the eternal life that is ours in Him so that we might go on living for God in the world to come and not for the fleeting pleasures of this life. Fifthly, do not be so foolish and beast-like to live for the pleasure of this world. Make God your treasure. See that the greatest of all gifts is to be in a right relationship with Him through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ lived and died and rose again to atone for sins, to free us from bondage, and to reconcile us to the Father. The greatest of all treasures is to have God. And so I wonder, do you agree with the psalmist when he speaks to the Lord saying, And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Can you say those words truly? Can you utter those words and mean them? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Give me you, O Lord. I would rather have you than the pleasures of this world, all of them together. You should be able to say this, brothers and sisters, and to mean it. Only a fool would live for lesser things. Sixthly, cease from all jealousy, envy, discontentment, and covetousness, and pursue that precious gift of contentment in the Lord. For godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Do not envy others, brothers and sisters. Do not covet what they have or complain about your circumstances. Rather, make God Himself your treasure and your delight, for only He can satisfy now and for eternity. Seventhly and lastly, do not misinterpret God's ways with men. We must learn to think correctly about the prosperity of the wicked in this life and the sufferings of the righteous. The prosperity enjoyed by the arrogant and wicked is not a blessing, but a curse. And conversely, the afflictions suffered by the people of God in this life are not a curse, but a blessing. The Father disciplines those He loves. Do you cherish the Father's discipline, brothers and sisters? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 Therefore, we are to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And we are to let steadfastness have its full effect that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James 1, 2, and 4. I'll close with these words. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let us bow together for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful psalm that helps us to sojourn in this world and to not slip or stumble. Help us, O God, as we observe the world around us, that we would think clearly 
and truthfully concerning you and your dealings with man. Help us to live in light of eternity. Help us to live being mindful of you. Give us a holy and reverent fear of you, O God, so that we might walk in a way that is pleasing to you. I pray, O God, that you would help us purify our hearts and minds so that we might walk faithfully before you all the days of our lives. In the name of Christ, we pray, and all of God's people say,